Dr. Bill Madison, welcome to the tangent. <laughs> Thank you for Thanks having me, Father us. Sam. This is uh, this is fun. All right, um, can we do a little bit of Notre Dame stuff before we yeah. get into oh, uh, talking about the? Yeah, be, before we start talking about my experience, we'll see which way this goes. <laughs> well, all right. I was I was thinking about this this morning. Now you are the I'm going to read this out of the the book jacket here. You're the Wilsey Professor in Theology at the University of Notre Dame. Yes, and you also serve in Notre Dame's Alliance for Catholic Education, preparing K to 12 Catholic school teachers of religion and helping form Catholic school leaders in how mission informs all aspects of schools. Amen. Okay. Uh, do you have a particular area of theology that you like to focus in? Yeah, moral theology, and in particular, the thought of Aquinas on virtue. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, Excellent. Uh, do you know all the words to the Notre Dame fight song? I do. Uh, I do. Awesome. I <laughs> okay. do. Sorry. I think, no, I think, no, no, I think it's a good thing. training when we arrive. Is it really? No, no. But it, wouldn't that be cool, though? I don't know if that'd be it cool would. or disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of both. <laughs> no, I, I think as a priest, anytime Notre Dame's on, people assume that I'm rooting for Notre Dame. And Deep inside, Father, you are. Well, this is the thing. <laughs> Having grown up in Connecticut where we don't have college football. Like, right. We don't do that here. That's true. So there's, I have no allegiance to a college football team. And so Notre Dame has become kind of the default. Right. Of, if, if I'm watching a college football game and Notre Dame's on, I'm rooting for Notre Dame. I can't mm, help right. myself. And I feel the same and, way about uh, BC because you know, the, the other Catholic school, obviously when we play each other, I don't root for them. But otherwise, I'm rooting for BC and Notre Dame. That's easy. I grew up in New York, <laughs> Father Sam. So like I felt the okay. same way. I had, no, I had never been to a college football game. When I came to be a graduate, student at, for my PhD at Notre Dame in 97. I had never seen a college football game. I literally, I, like, you know, those picture, those depictions in Revelation of like the 144,000 and you're kind of like, <laughs> what must that be like? I can't imagine that. It was like that. It was crazy. People yeah. are and, crazy. And now I'm one of them. And, and potentially literally 144,000 people <laughs> right, actually yeah. there in the okay. stadium, right? Yeah. All right. Okay. So how, do you do you go to every home game now? I go to a is lot that, of them. I mean, there was a, a period when we moved here from the East Coast that we'd always have guests every weekend, and now that's petering out, particularly after COVID. So now I'd say I go to about two-thirds of them. My wife, okay. who's actually the star in the family, uh, works for the development organization here, fundraising. So a lot of okay. times we go to you know um, host our benefactors, So and that's really fun. Nice. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. How did you come to decide that moral theology, just theology in general, yeah. was going to be the, the thing that you dedicated your life to oh my and, gosh. and make a career with? What, I mean, what level answer are we, Father Sam? If I just look at you oh. alone, like in the confessional answer, there's like the deep level answer and there's like, <laughs> there's like the cocktail party answer. Um, well, there's, I, I feel like there's something interesting here. So yeah, people right. expect priests so, who have studied theology. They don't expect that there's there's a layman who decided that he was going to go and, and get a doctor and that was is, has dedicated his life to teaching theology at a major Catholic university. Right. But this is, I think we forget that this is a thing that's really important yeah. and we need people like you who are doing this. Well, thank you for saying so because, and, and not just because it's people like me, but um, the reality is a vast majority of my colleagues are lay people, lay men and women. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, obviously with uh, our struggle with dwindling numbers of people um, and ordained life, um, you know, academic theology is important. It's hugely important. But if I got a guy who can go to, you know, preach to people and give the sacraments or go teach, you know, Augustine, 
if I'm a bishop, I know what I'm doing, you know? Um, so unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. that means we have fewer and fewer priests. But um, And luckily, that is something that faithful lay people can do and do well. Um, God willing, always kind of in union with the church, and not uncritically and, and rigorously intellectually, but ultimately for the sake, not just of thinking good ideas, but for helping to form people to be able to be better disciples, you know? Um, mm. So I'm very grateful for this vocation. The short, the, the, the not so short answer, but not long answer is um, I, um, through wonderful Catholic school upbringing, which is why I wanted to work for ACE. I went to Chaminade High School in Long Island, a Marianist school, and I went to Georgetown, which for all the jokes about it not being Catholic, which I'm sympathetic with, it actually has an amazing <laughs> campus, campus life program, you know, mm. I went to mass most nights there. Everything is there if you want it. You know, maybe they don't, mm. you have to find it, but it is there. And I, I got a phenomenal formation of the faith at Georgetown, some great theology professors. So I, I always say, like, I was blessed with the best of, you know. Um, and for that reason, for the, the faith for me was always um, an encounter with Christ and an invitation to a life that, although not without sacrifice and challenge, was ultimately most life-giving. And the people around me, my parents, family, you know, teachers modeled mm. that. So I kind of felt like I wanted to model that too, you know. And um, mm. so a long, torturous past of how it got there, but eventually discerned that teaching at the college level was uh, where the call was. So anyway, that's the short answer. Okay. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask what is – so you're, you're talking about your, your Catholic school upbringing yeah. in high school. What does that look like? What is a good Catholic school for, for the high school level? Um, I think it's a, and now as a parent of people who've gone through Catholic high school, one's in there now and one um, just finished and he's at Providence College as a freshman. Um, a good Catholic school um, is kind of um, boldly and rigorously intellectual, seeking the truth, mm -hmm. um, but yet all that is done in a manner that's animated by the faith, not in any kind of like repressive or redirecting sense, but a kind of broader situation. So there's gotta be liturgy that's happening. There's gotta be prayer that's happening. And mm -hmm. there's gotta be regular practices of, you know, service and devotions that kind of, mm -hmm. you know, provide the yeast, you know, that lets the culture of the school, um, it, it kind of um, uh, customizes students so that they can be most apt to be responsive to the spirit and how God is calling them mm. to discipleship. So ultimately that's up to God and the spirit. That's not a management technique. You know what I mean? You can't, right, you can't yeah. manage your way into someone's faith life. And I know a lot of parents struggle with this with right? their kids and their faith, right? But, but, um, but you can um, foster a culture where there are the least impediments to, to that happening. Right. You know? So I, that's, well, I, I feel like my school was that. What does that look like as a parent? Right. Um, what is the, what does the fostering look like as a parent? Oh, you mean not as a parent from parents' perspective on the high school? You mean in, in the no? Yeah. yeah well, so Listen, yeah, I, I should be more specific. Yeah. I have a young son. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I'm good. I'm I'm trying to like take in as much information sure. as humanly I mean, possible. You know, Father Sam can speak to this. What's this like in a parish? It's what we're all called to do, right? I mean, this is evangelization, like that. So for you're right. For me as a parent, um, like you, Matt, um, it takes on a particular shape. So the thing. Uh, what I would say most to parents on that and what I try to live up to and Courtney and I do and when we're at our best we do is that the faith is not like um, an extrinsically imposed obligation like, oh, we got to go to church or oh, say your prayers. Like if it animates you, think about all the things that animate you, your love of a baseball team or your love of reading or like you're going to pass that on because it's like beautifully integrated in your life. 
So mm-hmm. I think the goal is not to kind of force and manage. It doesn't mean there's no rules, right? If my kid says, I don't feel like wearing right. a mask, like, buddy, you want a mask, you know? Like, but like, <laughs> but it can't only be that, right? It has to be like, he's not right. want to see me love going to mass and, you know, be at peace and joy when I'm there and talk about it afterwards because it's not just something I checked off the box. So, right. Um, but then, so those are the explicitly religious activities like prayer and mass. I would also say that there's a, um, a non-coerciveness in communication and how we deal with one another, um, like a, a genuine openness and trust in God's providence, that there's a plan mm-hmm. for the family, that it's not all up to us, but yet we're called to participate. There's there's ways to like model that that aren't like, did you say your prayers? You know, um, <laughs> which is important too. So, Get on your knees. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, damn it, we're yeah. going to church. Everybody look happy, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like that would work. Yeah, right. Now, by the way, we all do that in our families. I'd certainly do that in my family. Right. Like, Courtney jokes around me. She's like, is there ever going to be a mass that you're not yelling us to get going and leave? And, you know, like, so, like, <laughs> right. um, you know, that happened, that all that stuff yeah. happens. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. As you, so in the work that you're doing with Ace uh, at Notre Dame, that culture that you're talking about, fostering that, that culture within the schools, uh, it sounds to me from the description that's that's here on the back jacket of your book. Yeah, <laughs> that's I confess that's the full extent of my research into this. Uh, this interview is over, Father Sam. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, there is definitely I think a need for for the the culture within the faculty and the administration, right? Uh, to to be present there, you can have parents who really want a strong identity, a strong Catholic identity for their, their children's school. And you can have kids coming from families that practice the faith. But if the faculty, if the administration aren't on board, it's it's not going to be given to them. Yeah. Um, so what wh- what do you do to, to foster that and to form those Catholic school teachers? And, and right. why is that such an important piece? Well, uh, it's a great point because that's, that's what ACE is all about. And the Remick Leadership Program that I work for is all about at the principal level. So that is crucial. You're right. This is not what you meant, but let me first say what it's not. You know, yeah. if it's primarily like some sort of litmus testing or kind of suspicion that these people who teach in the Catholic schools don't really hold the faith or they're not as formed or as prayerful, we hope. Like the minute that your Catholic identity becomes that, like it's over. It's over. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, if it becomes a way to kind of um, measure people against one another, like I. I just think that when Christ addresses the Pharisees, as we've been hearing in Luke lately, um, in, in the scriptures, that's the sort of dynamic that he's decrying, you know, not the genuine passing on of the faith, but the kind of using it as a tool for self-exaltation or demeaning other people, you know? So how do you do it? Well, the first thing is to remember that as people of faith in the faculty, like we're on a journey too. Like the model here isn't like, we're the faithful ones and how do we make students faithful, right? Like anybody's, path of discipleship is an ongoing journey. And yeah, God willing, you have more experience in it than your 15-year-old students, but maybe not, by the way. Um, but also, so how can we recognize that this is something that we're trying, our God willing, our best to respond to in our own lives and at times failing and at times we don't fully see clearly, but do we share our stories of struggle? Do we share our stories of vocation? Like I just did a minute ago, like, like that's, those stories are what give our students a kind of mental map to how to narrate their lives. Um, I think we have to recognize that like in our families, not everybody's at the same place. So, um, and that's not, you know, code for we rank each other as to who's the most faithful and some are B's and C's like, 
God and God's mystery and his wisdom has decided not to um, create us as people who are just finished, but people who are on the way. And that that's true mm -hmm. of, of a people as a whole and a church and Israel, and it's true of us individually. So when I think when we humbly look back at our lives at times when we struggled with things or before we were, it, it should make us merciful and humble to those around us who are not at the same place we are. So that's not saying anything goes. It's saying that the telos, the goal is clear. And not only in my own life, but others, we're all, you know, supporting one another and endeavoring to try to reach that. And if you model that to the students, that's like an adventure that people are drawn to, you know, not something mm. to beat somebody over the head with. So, yeah. um, and then of course, like one of the basic tech, I mean, we do a lot of technical stuff, you know, how do you teach religion? What's good lesson planning and sequencing? I mean, there is, there are technical aspects. And one of the things that we try to provide our, our um, school level leaders on who is usually are so faithful and beautiful and of any role of being a principal, HR, facilities, curriculum design, culture, the thing that most commonly scares the heck out of them is being a spiritual leader. And mm -hmm. usually for humble reasons, they feel like, gosh, you know, like I, I can't do that. Like, you know, like Father Sam does, like I'm not good enough. Which is, of course, how every scriptural character who is called by the Lord or called by God has responded, right? Like, so there's something beautiful and humble about that. But then we also want to empower them to be like, look, you know, you're you're being called not because you're so great, because God has a plan for you and through you to other people. So, so helping them to see how they can be spiritual leaders and instruments of God's kingdom, um, that that's like really important work. Hmm. Yeah. Well, on that note, then, yeah, um, I, I want to shift into the into your book. Follow me, because yes, your extensive uh, reading, Father Sam. My extensive yeah. reading. <laughs> Wait, did you tell him that I didn't read anything? You no. did. You did. <laughs> oh, I, I did. Read, right. Sorry. Sorry. I read some. No. Just for the record. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. <laughs> and I enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Sorry, well, Father. the reason I no no it's okay. <laughs> the reason I I want to shift over to the book is because to to that point of recognizing that we're not a finished product. Um, what I read in the book so far <laughs> is that you, you've taken these uh, very important passages from the Gospels, and you've you've written reflections from the perspective of the people who were there, right, first person. And so, in that in that account, what you're doing is you're also giving us deeper insight into the idea that we're not a finished product. That's right. And so, the the very figures that you're that you're talking about here. Um, that particular moment from the gospel that we draw and we read, we know what that gospel passage is. Right. But you're letting us go even even deeper with it. So let's just look at the first one. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, this this come follow me. Oh uh, yes. Uh, the in, the invitation or come and see rather, uh, the invitation to Andrew. That's right. right now, um, um, yeah, Jesus. Remember they're following John the Baptist, right? And he says, "Behold, the Lamb of God." And then they go and follow him, and Jesus turns around. He's like, "What's up? What are you looking for?" Yeah. So what, what are you trying to bring us into with Andrew here? So uh, great, great question. Um, so I think, so then, you know, Jesus turns around to them and says, what are you looking for? And, um, you know, they, they say, um, they're kind of like bumbling at this point, right? Like, uh, where do you live? Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and he says, come and see. And it says they spent that afternoon with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So that's it for the passage. Like, and, you know, as people who've grown up Catholic, you know, we've heard that, you know, regularly re read in the scriptures at mass. Maybe we read it on our own. But 
basically like what if you just read that account it makes it look like john the baptist points these guys follow jesus asks a question they answer it and then boom they had it they hung out in the afternoon but there's like a whole day there imagine your first day it's kind of like when when lovers narrate like oh when i met my wife we did this like mm -hmm. and you tell the story of it like what what the book is trying to do from the first person perspective of the character is obviously speculatively right we we weren't there we don't we have to mm -hmm. add detail but um is try to imagine what was it like for andrew that day like what was it like hanging out with jesus like how did he, did they talk a lot? Did Jesus lecture the whole time? Did, would they sit and pray the whole time and not speak? Like what? And so it's him trying to describe what it was like being with someone who was obviously God himself incarnate, you know? And he talks about how alive Jesus felt and how normal the encounter felt. There was laughter and small talk. There was deep talk and learning about each other's life. There was silent or encountering other people. So, in one sense, it was ordinary, but he tries to describe how, like, um, with Christ, every even the ordinary is extraordinary. You know, even through mm -hmm. these moments that seem simple, like we encounter the living God. So, what I was trying to, what I'm trying to do in this book, which I can tell you the genesis of, if you're interested, is basically say, like, when you read this story, the living God is trying to encounter you in your very life, like. It, that's what we believe, that we encounter the Lord himself in the scriptures. This is why Francis says you should carry a book of the Gospels and all that stuff, like, and why we reverence the Gospels, you know, and the liturgy of the Word, um, the Gospels in particular, but scriptures as a whole, like, that God is trying to encounter us, like, you individually, you know, Father Sam, you know, Matt, me, in our lives with all our distractions, brokenness, struggles, like, so it's trying to portray, like, that's what happened that day with him. Um, but really the goal is not informative. The goal is to provide a vehicle where you can be encountered by Christ in these stories. So, or I can, you know, so, so that's kind of the goal. I remember, so I, I spoke with, um, a fellow Veritas host, Father Joseph Gill has a show called Restless. Just waiting for that shout out from Restless. Yeah, there you yeah go. they haven't actually, talked I about us that, yet. I think they gave it to us actually. I don't think they did. <laughs> I refuse. You're stingy with their shout outs, I hear yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Until I hear the shout out with my ears right. and see it printed on the screen. Very good, no. <laughs> Very good. I, but but I was talking to him about the show The Chosen. Mm. Um and and now I happen to be a big fan of the chosen. I'm I think a it's really well fan. done. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're competing <laughs> now? Competing. This is fun. Okay. Yeah. Go. Yeah. <laughs> but so I was talking to him about the chosen and how and how speculative it is, it right. is, right? Inherently, it's a speculative work. And he kind of said to me, you know what? As long as Jesus Christ is being preached, I, I totally agree. that speculation is welcome. Uh, and, and this book reminds me a lot of that. You know, so I, I read through the second chapter today and how Peter says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And, and you wrote down how that's, as Peter, you know, that was me not wanting him to meet me in weakness. That was him, me wanting Jesus to meet me in strength. Right. And I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, like I get that, you right. know? And and that's not something that's explicitly in the text, but you yeah. drew that and out. And it could be wrong, by the way. I mean, you know, right, this book but, is not the God that chosen is not the gospel, right? Yeah, so. Right, of course. But, but it's that idea of like, regardless of whether or not that's accurate to how Peter felt, you know, it's Jesus Christ is preached and I encountered that's something right. that like that, that's something that will lead me closer to him, yeah. you know, recognizing that in myself. Oh, I like it when he sees that I'm strong. That's right. Which, you know, quite frankly, we all do. <laughs> Father Sam can attest to this. I just tried to 
screw a mic back onto a an anchor yeah. here and uh and it took me actually I, I didn't do it i ended up quitting and give it to fox I love it. I love it. so weakness comes easily yeah. is what i'm trying <laughs> <Right>. to say <laughs> no i think um but, that's actually a theme with character uh, with the character peter in several of the reflections throughout the book um including the washing of the feet that um we don't want god to have to encounter us in our brokenness you know a because we're ashamed b because we want to be kind of like I want to be for my parents better than I am, or I want to be for my spouse, you know? Um, well, imagine for God, you know? So, and, but yet the consistent claim of the gospel seems to be that when we honestly recognize where we are, that's exactly where God wants to encounter us. Not to leave us there, by the way, always to empower us to, you know, mm. live more fully in the spirit. Um, but that to foolishly pretend that we have to earn God's love when it's given to us as gift is just like, backwards you know just backwards mm -hmm. um and again that's not to say oh be who you are and don't change no no no. the change comes but it's always god's empowerment of us you know letting him do the work not i can live up to this darn it um so that was kind of my read of him there that you know remember he, that beautiful passage where it says he's working all night and caught nothing how many times mm -hmm. have you been in a situation in your life maybe in a relationship or with a bad habit or at work and you felt like you just keep working on something and like you're getting nowhere, man. You know, like um, yeah. And then yet yeah, that that is exactly where Christ encounters us, not to, you know, um, say hey you really are great or hey earn it, but to give us His love and mercy and forgiveness and also <laughs> animation and empowerment in His Spirit to live to be who He's called us to be. You know, so anyway, that was kind of my read of that one. That like Peter's fishing, and this is not you know unique as an interpretation by any stretch was symbolic for so many times in our life and we just try to do it on our own. And then we, you know, hopefully let ourselves be encountered by God and everything changes. And it's really tempting to, it's something that I teach with, I teach the CCD and I'll, I'll tell nice. my kids, you know, like the invitation of Christianity is not God kicks the door down and then shoves you through it and says, go bring back some souls, you know? That's right. Uh, it's, it's that God opens the door and then he walks with you. That's right. And he says, let's go get some souls. Amen. You know, Amen. and it's a we, you know? And so like, it's that same idea where you get that invitation. It's right. like, you know, he doesn't, he wants to meet you, but he wants to go with you. Yeah. And, and give you the power to do it. But here's, here's the thing that, um, and um, I don't know if it's one you wanted to talk about, but I'd love to talk about it at the very end, near the end. Mary, please, Mary let's talk Magdalene's about it. <laughs> encounter with Christ, the risen Christ. Like, could you imagine hmm. grasping the risen Lord? You know, like, I mean, yeah. and I think what most people think when they hear that story is, oh my God, I wish I was Mary Magdalene. Like, then it would all be clear to me. I would, I'd have no doubt as to who this man was. I'd have no challenge in living a life of a disciple because I clutched like literally right next to the tomb. He was in my arms, you know? And Mary's point in that reflection is, look, I have no doubt in, in all my bones that this is the risen Lord. But don't think that means now all of a sudden, like, there's no question for me or discipleship is easy, you know, that um, because of weakness or because of just human finitude and pre-bodiliness that, you know, the life of discipleship, even like she says for Mary Magdalene, which I assume has to be true. I mean, she's human and broken and sinful, you know, that I wasn't like, oh, she's done now. I think all of us want to be like swept off our feet. That yeah. doesn't seem to be what God 
is promising us. I mean, if that's what it is, he hasn't done it with a lot of people, you know, or maybe he has, <laughs> but it doesn't seem to be his way, you know? Um, so I think sometimes we want something that's not what God wants to give us. He wants, like you said, to walk with us through the door and accompany us, but not make the waves go away when you're walking on water or make everything so clear, you know? Hmm. That's reminding me of a, a course I took when I was in seminary, and the professor kind of stopped us on that scene of Mary Magdalene encountering Jesus, and he showed us, this must have taken two or three lectures, but he just showed us a series of paintings, uh, the, the Noli Me Tangere, uh, when Jesus says, yep. do not That's touch me, yes. do not cling to me, and he showed us a whole series of, of paintings, and each one a little bit different in the expression, in the positioning of Mary Magdalene and Jesus, each one a little bit different in, in kind of the facial expressions and everything, and he just kind of walked through with each one how we can understand what those what those words mean. Do not cling to me. In different ways. Probably, and it was right? it was fascinating. Right. Yeah, and, and so he was using the, the illustration, the, these actual classical art paintings to, to show us something. Yeah. And by doing that, what he was really showing us was, was how to read scripture on that deeper level That's right. and how to kind of position ourselves right in there. Um, and I think this, this approach that you're doing with the first person uh, is, is a really interesting way to invite that and to invite that meditation right. in. It's supposed to, um, God what, willing. Yeah, well, one spot where you do that in uh, Wait, Father, can I say one thing before you tell me the spot? This is Please. what Father yeah. Gill mentioned about the chosen, like, mm -hmm. or, or your um, visual depictions of that moment, like riffing on the revealed truth of Scripture and trying to ascertain different visions of discipleship. Like, that's Christian culture. We need more of that. We don't need less of that. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. mean it's all right, by the way. Like you, you may not like a scene in The Chosen, or I say, no, it's great. Like That's fine. Or you don't like that. To, no, that I'm a bigger fan than you. Think about the things that we care most about in our life. That's what we do. You know, We discuss them and like talk about a play that should have been called on third down or whatever. You know, like, So why don't we do that with our faith? Anyway, so I totally agree with that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, in in your chapter on uh, a true celebration, the woman who washes the the feet of Jesus and and dries her, his feet with her hair, um, it, it, she says here, "I was I certainly was not used to walking around with alabaster jars of ointment." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that by itself was was an interesting thing. Like I, I didn't just do right. that. I I I came to see him. That's why that's why I was there. And then this is what you write: What was my own sin? Most assume it is adultery. It is true Jesus had encountered women who knew this sin, but when this story is, sold, is told, my sin is not named, and it should not be assumed it is adultery. Nor will I name it here, so your sin can stand in the place of mine. Yeah. Like that jumped out oh, right nice. off the page at oh, me. Glad. So your sin can stand in the place of mine. Because what you're what you're doing is you're reminding us that when we read the gospel, it's not just to hear the story; it's also to be in As the story. Amen. And and to remember that this is how Jesus wants us to be That's in right. there. And so if if my sin can stand in the place of her sin, yeah. What sin is it that makes me want to wash the feet of Jesus with my tears? That's right. That's right. You know, and and dry his dry his feet with my beard. Yeah, right uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know? I, don't, I don't have enough okay, hair at the top hair. of my head to, to yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah. You know, okay. yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah, the um, you know, kind of like the literary technique of like not naming too much about a character in the story, so you can imagine yourself in there. So that's how I kind of imagine that with you know the unnamed sin, um, and like my read of of that story, which again, speculation, whatever is not like a lot of people to see that scene and they see her degraded, like humiliated, 
you know? And the way she tells the story in that reflection is that's not at all it, that she had encountered really through, she's kind of like a proto-disciple of us because mm. um, the way I kind of tell the story, she had heard of Christ before she met him. And she heard of his love and good news for the poor, and in particular, his forgiveness for sins. And she believed in his forgive his love and forgiveness, kind of like we don't clutch him or get to hold his feet, you know, like, you know, that's not for us. But even before she was able to do that, she was encountered by God through um, people passing it on, like we have been, yeah. and then believed the truth of that love. So she went there joyfully as like a thank you. As you know, I know you love me, and I know this is a gift. And that was her angle was she's here to just revel in the joy of forgiveness because she knows that God loves her through him. And then, of course, part two of that story is kind of the sad scene with the Pharisees, you know, typically blowing it, mm. not getting it. But, but I love how you zeroed in on that. That's one of my favorite ones of, you know, speculatively saying this is joyful and gratitude, not degradation or humiliation, you know? Right. And th that's one of the stories where she has no voice in the gospel the right. the story is told of, of what she did and she's praised for you're it you're right wow i never thought about that but but she doesn't say a word yes in in the entire like story she yeah, just comes good. in yeah she just comes in and does it so i mean her her voice is in the action very good it's, I it's can't in the I thing that she that. did yep. yeah but and then she's she's criticized from outside and that's when it's actually it's not the apostles who say anything it's jesus himself who speaks in her defense right very good very good right and so there's like there's something really powerful about that too where she doesn't she doesn't even try to defend herself she knows she knows her sin yeah whatever it is that she yeah. came to be forgiven for she knows what her and sin yet by is. the end of the story who's the one who's saying your faith has made you well you know exactly um, it's not the disciples not the pharisees her you know um yeah and because including a recognition of her brokenness she saw who the lord was and his love and mercy and forgiveness so a common read of that story which is um, also commonly rejected is somehow she earned it you know because she believed he forgave her or because she loved much her sin is forgiven and that's just completely wrong as jesus says in the story you know like that's that's not right um her response to god in gratitude and love is is a response to the gift that god gives initially you know right um, oh, that's a great one. I, I, I love how you mentioned about the no words. I never thought of that. Well, this is the thing that I was I was kind of struck by in that even the figures that you have in here, the the characters that appear in these stories who who do have a voice. Uh, so you have a chapter on Bartimaeus. Very good. Uh, yeah. Bartimaeus is the is the blind man, and the only thing we hear him saying is, "Jesus, Son of David, have pity on me." That's right. And I want to see. That's it. Two lines. That's it. Like that's that's the full content of his speech revealed to us in scripture, but you're you're kind of taking him deeper. Right. You're, you're taking him into that like the the fuller aspect of his personality, and again, speculative. Yeah. But a, like a beautiful meditation. Like, what would this man have been like? And in a lot of ways, I mean, I know you're Notre Dame, and so not BC, but it's very Ignatian. Oh. Uh, oh. If we can if we can bring in the, uh, the idea of Jesuit spirituality here, I mean, it's an Ignatian way of, of reading scripture, which is very powerful. Yeah. I should have told you guys that. Um, so the impetus for this, um, first of all, I, I went, I got my undergrad at Georgetown Ignatian Institution. I did the eighth day mm -hmm. silent retreat there. And then I had a two-year master's degree in Boston uh, with the Jesuits at Weston Jesuit. And my spiritual director at the time of writing this book, starting in 2020, 
was a great, great man, Father Brian Daly, who's retired now, living in Fordham. He's a Jesuit priest and um, first winner of the Ratzinger Prize in theology. So like a world-renowned wow. theologian, but one of, if not the most- Who's humble. Ratzinger? No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard of him. Um, like one of the most humble and beautiful people and spiritual directors. So anyway, um, it was I did a the 19th annotation of the spiritual exercises. So that's like- an hour a day version of what's normally a 30 day full-time retreat it takes about six months. And, um, father Brian suggested that, um, that I journal, which I frankly hadn't been a big journal guy. Um, but I really found it life-giving and I found myself writing these reflections about the story in my prayer, imagining myself in these stories, these details, um, some of which I continue to see anew, like you just showed me there, um, father Sam, but, um, these details really came alive and I started writing these reflections and I would share them with friends who were like, wow, that was really interesting. So that that's the impetus for this book was actually doing an Ignatian retreat and then writing this up originally just for my own prayer life and then sharing with people and them saying, you know, hey, write this up. So so that it's born of prayer and meant to aid people in their own prayer. All right, then. We have to shift gears really quick here yeah. because this is this is a refreshing perspective to hear, this, this idea of uh, a, a work that's, that's really born out of prayer, but coming from a theologian, okay? Well, now, I think a lot on. of times- You give us a bad rap. No, 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 no. no. I'm, I'm, look, I, this is, I, I think this is, this is the thing that I have to be really careful of myself. Like, I'll pick up, I'll pick up a work of theology- and it's it's really profound. It's really interesting. But I'll get in my head, and and I'll intellectualize That's right. a ton, and and I'll get so focused on the academic details um, that I can I can pretty easily forget uh, forget what Aquinas tells us to do, which is theology on our knees. Yeah, very good. Right? That very we, good. We, this this has to be from a, a position of prayer, and so it gets me thinking about like I think when uh, Benedict the Sixteenth wrote his Jesus of Nazareth series. He's really writing both academic, That's but right. also very, very spiritual reflections on uh, on mm. what it is to be in in relationship with Jesus and and what the yeah. gospel stories mean. Um, Jean Corbon, when he writes um, the uh, oh um, the Wellspring of Worship, uh, his book The Wellspring of Worship, which is all about the liturgy, but also about the Trinity, and like in a mm. really profound mm -hmm. way, he's diving into Trinitarian theology and. Trinitarian theology for me has always been the driest of dry theologies. You know, yeah, like trying been, to, I'm trying me. to figure out the persons and all this other stuff. But there, he's bringing it into the, into the liturgy, and he's he, like reading that book changed the way that I prayed the mass, mm -hmm. and it was it was one of those beautiful. Uh, it was one of those moments of realizing that we can do serious and deep theology while still maintaining a, a serious prayer life. Yeah. Yeah. So here you're you're bringing in uh, mm -hmm. like a, a beautiful speculation on what some of these unspoken things might have been in the context of the scripture without taking anything away from the gospel. No, it's all God. reflecting on One the gospel cannot. and building on it, which is which is really what theology is. The whole work of theology right. is like let's talk about Jesus. Let's let's get an understanding of that. But it can't be done if we're not praying. That's right. Um, this is all a very long way of, of me asking you this question. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry for the, the preamble. No, I love it. <laughs> I I always wonder what the state of, of academic theology right now is. Yeah. 
and how it's going. Like, are, are we in a healthy place with theology in the academy? Um, are we in a prayerful place with theology mm-hmm. and the way that it's being done, the way that it's being taught? And since I'm not in the academy, um, I'm, right. not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a professor or anything like that. Uh, what's it like being a theologian in a college setting, being a theologian yeah. in this academic setting and trying to teach it, trying to hand it on? And, and are we doing it well? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, okay, so gosh, there's so much to say there. Um, just to answer your last question first, because I, I can probably say the least about that. So that's about as tough a question to answer as like, how are we doing as a country in our faith? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> or, or parrot, you know, like, yeah. so I'm blessed at Notre Dame. We do like the highest level academic quality research, but we have mass every 1230, you know, in, in the theology building. You know, like I pray, many of us pray in our classes and there's certainly like our students are yearning for connections to their faith lives. So, um, you know, I, I used to teach at Catholic U. I thought that was thriving. I have friends who teach at Mundelein in Chicago. I think that's so place, there are places that are thriving. I'm sure there are places that are not where academic mm-hmm. academia is, <clears throat> you know, primarily an intellectual exercise that's not connected to the faith or even worse, some kind of power thing. But um, so I, I don't know, you know, I, I can't speak to that. I, there are places where it's thriving, thanks be to God. Um, what I will say, though, is back to your thing on the, the importance of faith for a theologian. This is like, it's not just theologians who have the struggle. I'm sure you do as a priest, actually, or I know my friends who do music ministry, you know, like when you offer mm-hmm. your technical skills at something, like it's hard sometimes to keep them animated by the importance of spirit of that thing, you know? And yes. and look, as a parent, I know this too. Sometimes, so so I guess the, the, the closeout of this is don't let your how-to or technical skills about doing something um, usurp what is the point of that thing. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So like, like a lot of times, like my wife travels a little bit for work. So when I get home, I could take care of the kids I, frankly, I'm pretty darn good about managing laundry, rides, making dinner, helping with homework. <coughs> when I'm not at my best, those become like tasks to manage that even if I do efficiently and to good results, when I'm not at my best, they're, they're not vehicles for engaging my children. They're more about getting crap done. <coughs> so mm. in the same way a theologian can be that way. I'm sure a priest could be that way. Spouses can be that way. Um, so it's just a reminder to, as we all try to, God willing, you know, live well-lived lives, like attention to the technical parts of our tasks is super important. I'm not downplaying that, but it's it, it's not the most important. This is how I actually read the Martha and Mary story. It's not that Martha um, was a fool for taking care of business. I mean, I, I'm sure many of us can sympathize with Martha, right? Right, she's getting stuff oh, yeah. done. Some someone's got to take care of business, right? I mean, Mary's hanging out <laughs> by Jesus' feet. You know, she's like you know lollygagging and just taking the good parts without the work. And this this reflection isn't in that book, although there is a reflection by Mary of Bethany when she uh, washes Jesus' feet. Um, a lot of feet washing in this book. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I think that the problem with Mary that Jesus gently chides. I'm scared that Martha, that Jesus gently chides her on, is letting means usurp the ends. You know, like, 
serving is good, but the reason why you're serving is to create a hospitable environment for people to encounter each other, encounter God. So when like cleaning the house or getting ready for guests actually impedes that goal, like that's a problem, you know, like as we all do when sometimes we get ready for guests. So it's, so just keeping like means and ends in proper proportion, you know? Um, Mm. Anyway, sorry, that was a real, but I think this is something that your listeners can sympathize with, not just theologians, it's parents, spouses, I'm sure priests, right? Like, Absolutely. Um, we get we get so caught up in, in so many details of, of the stuff that we have to take care of. We've got to get this bill paid. We've yeah. got to get this kind of donation. Um, we're worried about how what our what our numbers are looking like or, or what other things that we have to get into. And so we can really easily fall into, let's just take out the pastoral manual, the finance manual of the okay. diocese, and let's just check the boxes and make sure that we're doing all the right stuff. And then you get busy with all of that stuff. Right. And it can it's it's easy to it's easy to fall into the trap of of not really praying. That's right. Of of not really being as as present before the Lord as as we need to be. Right. Mm. Um, and easy, I think, to to be results oriented. That's right. Uh, instead of process. Yeah, and trusting and, God's uh, agency, not primarily your own. You know. Yeah. Exactly. The um, exactly. you mentioned the manual. There's nothing wrong with the fact there's a manual. But if you become just a manual guy who's not encountering your parishioners as he's asking for money mm-hmm. or working on the ministry, you know? Um, and then of course you mentioned the other thing that your primary rootedness is in the Lord. So if you're, if God forbid, if you're doing the work and not even attending to that, right, which we've all done at different times in our lives, that's when we really get kind of rootless, you know, and untethered. Right. Um, and then the, the whole overall affect of it becomes really just heavy. I'm, I'm doing priestly ministry and there's maybe not a whole lot happening in prayer. Then it gets, this is, this is just exhausting. Yeah. Instead of life-giving, instead of something that's, that's, right. that's filled so with the Spirit. Yeah. We're coming full circle to our first conversation about what parents can do. Remember to hand on the faith or what constitutes mm-hmm. good. Like, this is really that conversation. Or yeah. whatever your thing is as a family, who cares what you do? You know, you go play board games together. You go for walks. Like, are you doing the family tasks in a ways that's kind of like um, permeable by the Spirit? Or is everything kind of a management exercise that's getting stuff done, you know? Like, right. Um, so, yeah, I, I was thinking about it because, so I, quite frankly, my thoughts were going in several different directions, but I usually do. Yeah. <laughs> that's my thing, man. <laughs> I am distracted. Um, but I think this is what Christ meant when he said, um, he's, I, I can't remember the exact quote, so you're going to have to remind me. He's telling the people not to offer up. Uh, empty words, mm-hmm. right? And and that is something that, right? You could so easily teach your kids say the rosary every day. That's right. You know, but that that kid very well may say the words without any meaning. And I say the kid because it's I'm thinking about it you know, teaching. Yeah. But frankly, like I do that. You know what I mean? I shouldn't, and I try not to. But of course, I do. I, right. I'm not perfect. Um. And it's that I, that's exactly what you're saying. Right. Let it permeate. And just but to be clear, further like, than that, yeah, please. because we're human, there are always going to be times that in our marital communication, and I'm sure when, you know, Father Sam's saying mass, you get distracted. I mean, part of being embodied in this. No, life, he's perfect. Of course, except for Father Sam. <laughs> everything but Father Sam. But everything, he's perfect, but he did forget to read your book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> moments, he's recovering well, though. The um, moments, <laughs> moments of distraction, like that's normal life. That's, you know, whatever. Yeah. But like, 
more pernicious is when like we lose the whole spirit of the thing and totally, you know, we go to church yeah. or we say the rosary or, you know, I take care of my tasks with my wife and my kids that by the way, are good tasks. I'm not talking about being abusive or, you know, neglectful, right, right. right. but, but they're not animated by that spirit of charity. Aquinas, um, in line with the scholastics and and even the patristics before him, they had a much better um, sense of this than we did. They used to talk about the dynamic of dead faith, you know, reference to the letter of James and lifeless faith. Yeah. And lifeless faith is like, you can go through the motions. I mean, I guess the Pharisees, frankly, were kind of an example of this, and God forbid that we are, but um, that people who are religious in appearance and not um, – duplicitous intentionally, like trying to just do it to look good. But it's like lost mm -hmm. its spirit, you know, kind of lost its like way to be yeah. close to the Lord and one another. And look, I, to be honest, as I get older, I'm 52 now. It's something I fear in my own life. Like, you know, I teach theology. I'm, you know, do a lot of things that look good. And I've been trained well enough that I do them well. But that's not, at the end of the day, the core of what God's calling me to as a parent or as a spouse or as a theologian. And so I think so what's the best answer for that? Well, I think the bad answers are to just be fearful of it and get scrupulous and think, you know, God, yeah. I guess I'm not doing it. And I guess another bad effort is to try to like in a Pelagian manner, try to work your way out of it on your own, you mm -hmm. know? I think the right answer is to turn to God in prayer and trust and say, This is where I'm at. I love you. I trust that you're gonna keep me sustained in your grace and love and you know, and, and God's good. He will, you know. Um, but anyway, but that's an understandable kind of like when you're humble in the face of your beloved if you're married or, you know, you're worried about how good a parent you're going to be. Every parent has done that. that. That's totally appropriate. But then don't do nothing or just frenetically try to fix it. You know, go with the spirit. Um, to that point, go with the spirit. Go with the spirit. I mean, we <laughs> – I think we can we can so easily – get caught up in trying to figure out just the most practical or right, what am I supposed to do? Let, let me, let me get it right. And I love it when people tell me exactly what should be done. <laughs> like, this is the thing to do. Like, I, I like that kind of direction. Um, and I am challenged when I am not given that direct right. direction when it's, when it's so, when it's more open-ended, that's a challenge to me, but precisely what you're saying, go with the spirit. That becomes then the thing that I need to bring into my prayer. It's all right, right. Lord, what do you want me to do? Right. How do you want me to do this? And then to follow the direction that God inspires. That's right. Why Isn't it amazing that we all, people talk about this when they fall in love too. We all want to be swept off our feet. We want to like, we say we care about our freedom, but we want to surrender our agency in a way that mm -hmm. it just happens to us. Like, God clearly does not want that. If God wanted that, he would have made us puppets, right? I mean, it, he could have done that. He could have done anything. So apparently in God's providence, he decided he wants us to participate in our own life in Christ. And if he, even Mary, I mean, no one had more graces than Mary or more exalted a vocation. She didn't know it was coming. She was going to face sorrows like um, – you know, Jesus getting lost in the temple and she's had to, the horror of witnessing her son die on the cross. And she didn't know about the resurrection any more than the others who heard Jesus preach. Like, so if we think that clear, perfect knowledge and ease of response is what we've been offered as disciples, that's just wrong. Um, somehow there's got to be that trust in God's spirit that it really is us, even though it's primarily him. 
but like it's not without us. That that seems to be the game he's interested in. Um, otherwise, he would have done things a lot differently. So then we got to go with that, you know, um, and recognize that. Well, um, it's going to be unclear at times or difficult to discern. Mm-hmm. Like, remember, I'm, don't you remember, you guys remember this, like when you're in your 20s and you're like, God, I'm sure you, Father Sam, just tell me, are you, do you want me to be a priest or not? You know, yes. is this the person, yes. right? Yes. Everybody wants that. That's totally normal, you know, but apparently that's not, I mean, God would send letters to people if he wanted it that way. He doesn't. You know? <laughs> um, he wants you to participate in your discernment, you know? Um, so... Hey, that's that's like a natural thing to want, but apparently it's not God's desire. I mean, unless you want to say we're all so sinful, which obviously we are, but like that literally that's only because of our sinfulness. I don't think that's true. I think it's because of our creatureliness. Like we're not angels. Yeah. We're embodied creatures in time. Yeah. So God thought that was a good deal to create things like that. But to that point about like wanting to surrender our agency, um, it's interesting because we have – kind of simultaneously these these things happening. One, I want to know what God wants me to do and I just want him to tell me. Right, right. I don't want to have to do anything yeah. to figure it out. So God, just tell me. I, I will surrender that agency because it's easier. But then once God does tell me, <laughs> once I figure out what it is that God wants me to do, yeah, then I can't right, surrender. Right. And one of the most <laughs> one of the most common things that comes up in spiritual direction, certainly in, in my own life, and I'm sure I know this happens for other people because they come and talk to me about it, but the idea of surrendering, That's is, right. it's a hard thing to do. Um, I hear it all the time. I experience it myself. It's hard to actually engage in that act of surrender. And yet we're both designed for it. Yep. In that we're meant to be conformed to what God wants for us, but we are also meant to act with God. Yeah, that's right. Like to cooperate with him. And it's it's kind of finding what that – I don't even know if it's proper to call it a balance. Yeah, I wouldn't either. I'm Very good. Sure I wouldn't it, either. I, I don't think it is I a agree. balance. Because yeah, balance suggests the more God it is, it's less me. I think the more we let it be God, the more we're truly ourselves. So I think you're right. It's not a balance. It's like um, collaboration, cooperation, as long as God's primary, of course, but – Right. And, and conforming, I think, right? That that idea of conforming to God's will. Yeah, that's right. Um, like, because so holy orders, I, I'm configured to Christ the high priest, right? And so in that configuration, there's there's a, a way that I'm uh, theoretically, I'm, I'm molded to him, right? Yep. But I need to make that a, a reality. Like I need to cooperate in that in that reality, becoming more a reality every day. That's right. Or your um, marriage or your, that's right. Or, or all of our discipleship exactly. and baptism. That's right. That's right. 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 No, amen. Um, it is, yeah, it is extraordinary that this is God's will to, um, and it is, like, I always think of the times in my life, it's like my prayer life. I, I mentioned this, the exercises before, like I'm some prayer all-star. The prayer life is one of the biggest struggles <laughs> in my life. And it, it is without fail the case that when I am responsive to God's invitation to greater prayerfulness, God is always faithful, God is always there, and I'm better off. So can anybody please explain to me why I'm not more prayerful than I am? Like, I mean, it's kind of like eating well or working out. Like, you know, it's better for you. You know, it's not yeah. without sacrifice, but every time you right. do it, you're better off. And yet sometimes we don't. Like, it's astounding to me that um, yeah. despite the real experiences I have of surrendering and cooperating with God's will in my life, it's always better for me. And yet, you know, every day in, day out, I decide I know better. You know? Right. Um, it's it's so true. Now, can I ask a sort of dangerous question? Um, and and maybe it's not dangerous. Maybe it's actually just like an, an easy one that that we can bat around for a little bit here. But with a specialty in moral theology, you have written a book that is entirely about scripture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And entirely a meditation on scripture. Um, 
I don't believe that there is as radical a separation between the various theological disciplines as we sometimes make. There are certain there things like be. I know Very that good. I don't. Yeah, but I know that I don't know as much about scripture as as scripture scholars. Yeah, but, I certainly don't. And either. I'm I'm pretty confident that I know more about um, about ecclesiology than some of our scripture scholars because that's the thing that I always yeah, focused gotcha. on, right? Um, but at the same time, there shouldn't be too much of a separation. So, what's it like as a moral theologian? Uh, doing this kind of a work mm -hmm. that's so much more focused on scripture and is it enriching your moral theology? Uh, is right. it, is it transforming? Oh my God. What a, thank you for asking that and wanting to talk about that. So first of all, my hero, you know, besides like the classics, like Aquinas and whatever in Gustin, but like my hero is a Catholic moral theologian who I think is the most important um, moral theologian after the council is a Belgian Dominican priest named Father Cervais Pinkers. And mm -hmm. one of, uh, he wrote a very, I think the most important book after the council in moral theology, the sources of Christian ethics. And um, one of his main things is the problem with the compartmentalization of theology and that, you know, and most, the reason why people have to sort through, you know, Aquinas' summa for the ecclesiology is because everywhere, you know, like our life in the spirit <laughs> is everywhere and the scripture is everywhere. So yes, there's organization to it, but it's not the kind of compartmentalization we got after the council of Trent and the you know, preparation of seminaries by subdisciplines, which has its role, but as unfortunately it gets too compartmentalized. So you asked what it was like for me to do that. Um, I guess at the end of the day, it was, maybe it was a positive moment of surrender. Like uh, one of the reasons that we academics write in our discipline is because we feel like we're justified and qualified and that gets things we can control better. So I'm under no illusions that a scripture scholar would laugh at a lot of what I wrote from a scripture scholar perspective, you know, like I, <laughs> and that's fine. You know, like I'm not, I mean, Pope Benedict is one of the rare people that you mentioned earlier who can actually write with the ability of a scripture scholar and having kind of just consumed all that literature, which I have not. Um, and yet also as a prayerful, you know, obviously the Pope and theologian. So, but I'm not that. So like, um, but you know what? Christ has invited me to encounter him in the gospels too. And yeah. I found this life-giving and helpful. And if people find it helpful, then amen. Thanks be to God. Glory be to God. If not, then don't buy the book. You know, then, then I won't sell any books. That's really – so that, that's not my problem, you know? Like, so we'll – well, I don't. I don't know if, if uh, scripture scholars will laugh at you for writing this book. Yeah. I mean, Emmaus Road and Scott Hahn did publish. No, yeah, yeah. well, listen, so that's that's pretty good. Scripture can I tell you this? Right um, and now I realize I'm sharing it with the public, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm so proud. Wait, wait. Is this an exclusive? Is this yeah, a reveal? Right, okay, right now, this is the moment. Where where are we? In yes, this? it's minute fifty three thirty. Let's go back to this. Um, I have a master's student um, in my class right now, a guy named, great kid named Nick Ramirez. And he's like, hey, I was back at Steubenville uh, last week for a conference. And uh, I saw Scott Hahn. He said that your book, like, it really had an impact on him. I was like. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can share something similar uh, awesome. and much less, which is that when we interviewed him, uh -huh. I, I made a point to Dr. Hahn. That was straight out of his own. I book. love it. Like I was, like I was basically quoting him, you know. Fawning over. And he said to me, "Matt, you've put your finger right on." It. <laughs> and I was like, "I was like, I can, I can die now." Hey, I, like, can I? I'm, <laughs> you drop the mic and you walk out. <laughs> yeah, I said, "I retire from my radio career." It's enough. Now you let your servant go in peace. <laughs> yeah, <I love> it. <laughs>
Oh, wow. So, no, but he's, but show, look, to be honest, Scott I will Hahn. say this about Scott Hahn. It's because he is a you know world-class scripture scholar. I get that. But again, as evidenced by the books he puts out with Emmaus Road, he's not just that, right? It's not academia as an yeah. end itself. It's a way to encounter the Lord and share you know the riches of our tradition with other people. So in fairness, so thank you. To the extent that someone would recognize crossing those um, sub-disciplines would be important. Certainly he would, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe one, one last piece here that I think is really special with, with this book um, is the, the reflection questions that you've added in. Oh, yeah. Oh, the definitely. Chapter. Definitely. Uh, because I think first, just for the person reading it individually, it allows them to, to think a little bit more and to, to step into some of that journaling themselves, right. uh, mm-hmm. to put themselves in the scene uh, and to, uh, to meditate even even more deeply, so to to maybe hear a, a perspective on the story, but then to take that in and get their own perspective. Right. But then th- there's a, a great gift that those kinds of questions are too, which is that um, we can we can take that and hand it to a group in a parish. That's mm-hmm. right. And let people sit down and and read this together. And so this becomes an opportunity. These these kinds of reflection questions become an opportunity for for faith sharing. Right. Um, as as you were writing it, was was there any indication in your in your heart as you were preparing this book that this would be something that you'd want to see used in parishes oh, for it was the whole point studies? Of it. The for, whole point of it, because right. <laughs> because um, <laughs> you know, first one of my favorite books of all time is um, Henry Nowen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, which you may yeah. know. He, you know, he reflects on the prodigal son from three different perspectives, from the point of the three main characters. You know, the younger son, the older son, and the father. And he really kind of dives into each of those characters, you know, what it must, what their experience must have been like. It's not the first person perspective, but it's a great book. And then in each one, he talks about at different phases in his own life. He's been like the younger son or been like the older son or the one he has the most time struggling with is how he's called to be like the father, as we all are, and to be you know, merciful and forgiving. So books, I and, and I can name others, books that um, invite you into the scripture more deeply and um, oftentimes by including reflections on one's own vulnerabilities and whatnot, like, oh my gosh, if if I could have a hundredth of an impact that like that book had on me to other people. So, mm. but that's of course the hope, right? I mean, if it doesn't, then get rid of it. I mean, it's not an end in itself, that book, but my hope and prayer is that it will, that it will help people encounter Christ in the scriptures in a manner that's attuned to the particularities of their own life. So that is completely the hope so if you're doing a retreat ignatian or not if you're praying Mm -hmm. alone or with peers one person or a group in a parish absolutely i hope that can be a resource well i can tell you that having read the the bit that i've read already and gone through those reflection questions the one about casting your nets out deeper what are you called to cast your net out deeper i was like man i already know exactly you know (laughs) deep inside (laughs) and then it and then it brought out a very good conversation between myself and my father oh wonderful um wow and so i've already i've already seen the devotion the devotional effect oh matt that's fantastic you know this particular book that then you just surpassed the awesome feedback i got from um scott hunt that like Way to go. (laughs) I mean, seriously, thanks be to God, right? The spirit and action. If this can be, you know, as as a teacher, and you can certainly know this, um, Father Sam, um, when you give homilies or whatnot, you know, God is good and God uses you in ways you don't even intend or understand. So, like, I've Mm -hmm. had students come back to me years later and be like, oh, yeah, you once said this in class. I'd be like, I had no idea I said that. I certainly wasn't talking (laughs) to you. I didn't intend that, right? Like, 
but of course it's God using you in ways that, you know, you're a role in, but so what God willing that happens with this book, you know, that, um, and it could be issues at work or in our own personal habits or in our prayer life or in our marriages, Mm -hmm. but our parenting, like hopefully there are ways that we're called, where is God calling in life? Because let me tell you, I don't know what it is, but there is an answer to that for each of us. I mean, there's no doubt in my heart, God is calling each of us individually in the particularity of our own life to greater love of him and others, you know, through him. So like, I don't know where you figure that out with him, but let me tell you, it's there, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So thanks, Matt. That's great feedback though. Yeah. Yeah, Are you Thank you for sending me a book. Yeah. (laughs) It's just making me think of the time I was standing at the side door of the church after mass and a lady came out to me and said, Father, thank you so much. That was a great homily today and, and walked away. And I said, that's great. I didn't say mass. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is awesome. I wasn't the one. I didn't give the homily today. Oh gosh, I'm at the side door. Awesome. I'd be at the front door if I was the one who gave the <laughs> That is hilarious. I'm glad the homily was good. So I went and I told the priest who, who actually preached. I said, great homily today. Right. I was told it was a great homily that really made an impact. Oh, my gosh. That is a perfect <laughs> example of, like, ultimately what the point of all our work is. Amen. <laughs> yeah, it's it's to disappear. Right. Well, speaking of disappearing, we've got to let you get to a faculty meeting. Okay. Um, so thank you very, very much for giving us your time. The book is Follow Me, Walking with Jesus Through the Gospels, published by Abbas Road Publishing. We've got a link to it in the show notes. Bill Madison, thank you so much. Yeah, hey, Father for, uh, Sam and Matt, thank you for all you do and leading people you know, to the Gospels and all the ways you do. Um, and I, I just appreciate your hospitality and having me on. So thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hey, everybody, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to further support The Tangent, please consider subscribing or following on your preferred platform, following us at the Tangent underscore Catholic on Instagram, or even donating at VeritasCatholic.com. See you next time. God bless.